Sylvia called me um, last week at some point and said that she had been on her book tour and teaching um, in that form for a while um, and uh, wondered about sharing a Monday night together. Um, and as we talked, uh, the focus that came up and that she wanted to, uh, us to address together is how to stay awake or sane or happy in the truest sense of happiness in the midst of the complexity of life. Um, I think the first thing that's necessary in uh, speaking of that question is to acknowledge that it is the spiritual question. It's not what happens when you sit in meditation or when you're in the temple or wherever you happen to be. That's the warm-up, or that's called practice, is what it is. But it's practice for life, for living. Um, how do we make this world and the life that we live in it our, our place of awakening? It also needs to be acknowledged immediately that we live in a strange time and a, a culture, a, um, technological world that is probably busier than any other time for human beings. Extraordinary busyness. And, you know, the amount of input from the news, the TV and the radio and the newspapers and the, the amount of, of phone and phone messages and faxes and email, you know, um, and then the stress of commuting so that you don't work in your village but you spend all that time in various vehicles getting to and from places. Um, not to speak of the difficulties of family fragmentation of so many single parents and um, and on and on. And that there's a way in which um, it's a whole new task for us. And then, okay, we have labor-saving devices like computers. But I don't know anyone who works less since they got their computer, do you? Hmm? So... I'm sort of wondering. And now at first, as one undertakes a meditation practice, especially in the early years when we were practicing together and so forth, um, it was on retreats where you could be slow and mindful, take your time to be present. And that becomes the idea, okay, if I slow down and each thing carefully, that's what it means to be awake. Of course, the kids at places that we've taught retreats like the... Uh, Green Gold Zen Center community, when the Vipassana retreats would come, they'd say, oh, the night of the living dead is coming, right? Or something like that, the zombies are coming, so um, slow, mindful walking. Be very mindful. The idea isn't slowing down, you know, while you're on the freeway. <laughs> It's more and more about letting go, about moving gracefully where one is, letting go into that. And I remember asking Manindra, one Indian teacher, um, was he mindful all the time? And he kind of smiled and said, not in that way, not in the way that you're thinking. He said, rather, there's a kind of a, a field of presence or a mindfulness, um, like someone going down the stream, and then I become aware, I hear the rapids. 
you know, and I know when it's time to steer the boat. Sometimes the boat just goes by itself, and I'm there enjoying it. And then, okay, rapids are up, and I notice there's fear or there's um, conflict or there's something. And the moment that I hear that sound, or that is to say I feel the conflict, the struggle within me, then all of a sudden the mindfulness grows somehow to meet that experience. And it's easy then, or easier. The abbot of one of the largest temples in Bangkok, who is the now become the patriarch, the supreme the head of the Thai Buddhist council, and a teacher of mine, is also the teacher for the king of Thailand and the advisor to various prime ministers and military figures and everybody of, uh, of uh, importance in Thailand more or less comes to see him. He's this enormously busy schedule after he goes out with his begging bowl in the morning. Then he sits and meets the various important figures. And then he'll teach and he's always doing something. And I went in one day and bowed to him and I say, you seem calm. You seem happy. <laughs> he is. He's a very happy, calm person. I said, how do you do it? He said, I take things one at a time. One general at a time, right? <laughs> one prime minister at a time. So Ajahn Chah used to say, can you find that place which is not moving forward and not moving backward and not standing still? Mm. which is to say to really live in the moment it's not even the moment because sometimes we think of the moment as this little thing that's kind of wedged in between the past and the future you know what I mean I got one (laughs) it's different than that this is from the words of the Buddha the monks went And the Blessed One said, I will teach you what is meant by knowing a wiser way to live. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is, rest in the here and now. Seeing life deeply, it is possible to see all that is just here, not entangled by anything. It is possible to put aside craving and fear. The result is simply a life of peace and joy. It's not that little thing that we think of as a moment, but it's really resting in the stream, resting in eternity, which isn't some other place, but always. There's a kind of spontaneity in that. It's wonderful. Now, my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who was very spontaneous and not preparing stuff, used to say, don't prepare for your Dharma talks. Don't write anything down. You know, just sit and get quiet and let whatever's there speak itself. I can do that. I've done that sometimes. But I also, you know, and it's all right. I learned, actually, that I do better when I prepare. Um, But the preparation isn't old in some way. I prepare, and it's a way of reflecting. It's a kind of meditation so that then I can feel it more deeply when I speak. And I suppose I tell you that story um, because there isn't a right way. It was right not to prepare for some, and for some it may be right to prepare. But none of that 
really affects what's going to happen much. It doesn't. We all plan all this stuff thinking we can control the future. How many of you have been able to control the future? <laughs> Let me know. What it means instead is that we have to be true to our vision. In the deepest sense, true to our own vision. There's an old Welsh fairy tale, a number of stories, but in this particular old Welsh myth and story, Rhiannon, who in this image is riding the most beautiful dappled horse across the countryside, and Rhiannon is the goddess. She's the, she's the symbol of the earth, of nature itself, that comes and goes in its seasons, that gives to all things. And she's riding on this beautiful horse, dappled horse, across the green fields of Ireland or Wales, wherever she is. And young men especially see her, and they say, wow, this is something. And they get on their great steeds and they ride after her as fast as they can, the best warriors and the greatest riders. And somehow the faster they ride, the more gently she rides away and recedes in the distance. <laughs> and in the story, they're never able to catch up to her. And one day, she stopped watering her horse at a well. And a young woman comes up to her and says, I've seen the young man of the villages and all these people going and riding their great steeds as fast as they can to catch up to you, and yet never do they seem. And, and you, you just glide along through the fields. What is this? How does this happen? And Rhiannon turns, and she says most simply this phrase, I journey on my own errand. That's her phrase. I journey on my own errand. It sounds kind of simple, kind of almost common. And yet, if you reflect about it, she's saying something extremely wonderful and important. She's speaking about what sometimes in the Buddhist tradition is called bodhicitta, or the seed of Buddha nature, that we know in us what is most important. It's there. It just takes a moment to feel it, to sense it. That possibility of living with compassion and ease and greater wisdom. And she stays true to herself. And none of those things then catch her, touch her. I just taught a weekend retreat with a good friend, Michael Mead, up in Seattle on Milarepa. He told the story, drumming, and he's a mythologist. And he told it not as a Buddhist particularly, but just as one of the great myths of the world. And he started to drum as he does and you know, begin to tell the story of this great Tibetan yogi. And he first told the story of Banner of Victory, the father and the grandfather of Milarepa, and sort of how this story begins. Most of you may know it. And he says, to put it simply... Milarepa, this great saint in the caves of India, of uh, the Himalayas of Tibet, his story begins with family problems. It's true. You know, there's a 
mean aunt and uncle who steal things and there is a um, you know villagers who are complicit in the death of a family member and all of this stuff and then he stopped after a little bit of the telling the story of Milarepa and he said how many of you have had family problems <laughs> we don't even need to ask do we so the story of Milarepa begins with family problems and then goes into a great betrayal all of their inheritance is stolen and then he finds teachers and they become false teachers for him limited and through this whole story as if Milarepa is riding on a horse this wonderful horse the horse is of his own devotion his own ardor, his own willingness to go through all the things that he goes through, the family problems that one has to deal with, the betrayal, the false teachers and the good ones. He has underneath that an intention, and it's the intention that he carries that keeps him able to learn where he goes. That intention is written on Mahatma Gandhi's tomb. When you go to New Delhi, where Gandhi's body was burned along the banks of the Ganges, there's this great green lawn that goes down to the water, and a large stone wall that has simply written in it a phrase, before you act, or before every act, think of the poorest person you have met and ask yourself whether this act will be of any benefit to them. And this was Gandhi's errand through this world. So part of what keeps us awake is to follow our own errand and to know, to take that moment to to sense what we most deeply value. Yitzhak Rabin, whose death we mourn these days, followed a great errand, you know, an errand of peace. And in our retreat, when we heard the news, we chanted and grieved and did a funeral. And in the end, those of us of the 150, there was a handful who were from that same desert tribe as Rabin, stood up and chanted the Kaddish. And we didn't know it well, so we did it haltingly and missed words, which is kind of how it is these days with rituals, isn't it? But we knew it was important to do it anyway. Sunrise by Mary Oliver. You can die for it, an idea or the world. People have done so brilliantly, letting their small bodies be bound to the stake, creating an unforgettable fury of light. But this morning, climbing the familiar hills in the familiar fabric of dawn, I thought of China and India and Europe and I saw how the sun blazes for everyone just so joyfully as it rises under the lashes of my own eyes. And I thought, I am so many. What is my name? What is the name of the deep breath I would take over and over for all of us? Call it whatever you want. It is happiness. It is another one of the ways to enter the fire. And I read that really in part as a tribute to Rabin, whose life was lived from that place of the beauty of intention of his own errand in the world. 
what reminds us and awakens us? It's in a moment. Time out. Counting to ten, the old adage. Just to stop for a moment. The ritual of washing your hands or taking a walk or a few breaths, feeling the rhythm of one's own heart. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time, (laughs) says Barbara Ruth, Sangha member. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. (laughs) You understand? Just a moment to feel one's rhythm, to walk, to slow down for a moment. Or not to slow down if you're on the freeway, you don't slow down, but to let go in your body and let your shoulders drop. Sometimes it's your body that knows. You don't even remember. And you talk to your body, you say, hey, how's it going? It says, huh, let's take just a few breaths. And it knows, it'll tell you, I promise. The wisdom is there in your body in a moment. The Buddha said, this very body is the place of our awakening. Sometimes it's death. Sometimes it's not the simple ritual of breathing or walking or sitting. Sitting's another one to take a little time just to sit. But sometimes it's not that. It's death like Rabin's. The trouble with you is you think you have time. That's from Don Juan. And again, he reminds us when he says, speaks of keeping death over your left shoulder as an advisor. He says, an immense amount of pettiness is dropped immediately if your death makes the smallest gesture toward you. You understand? Rilke. I reproach modern religion for providing their believers with consolations and glossings over of death instead of giving them the means to come to an understanding of it. Without death, in its full, unmasked cruelty, a cruelty so immense that it is precisely with it that the circle closes, it leads back, if we face it, to a grace which is greater, purer, and more perfectly clear than we have ever, even on the sweetest spring day, imagined grace to be. You know those moments when you realize that your life is given to you anew today again, a kind of grace. Sometimes it's friends. We just remind each other. I think I can tell this story um, because he's told it in talks himself. Um, Joseph Goldstein, who's colleague and friend for many years, at one point some years ago, while teaching, but early on in his teaching um, and practice, came to a place where this great fear arose for him, circumstances, really became frightened. And it went on for a long time, not just for a day or a week, but for quite a number of months, really kind of in it and facing it and dealing with it. And one day he was on a retreat that he was leading. I think it was with Sharon, Texas or somewhere. And it was the right moment. They were taking a walk. 
outside and he'd been wrestling with this for a long time and she looked at Joseph and she said Joseph it's only a mind state you know it's only a thought and somehow in that moment he knew it I mean he'd been telling that to people you know all those months you know how it is but somehow the mirror was held up in a really kind way just remember oh and it just vanished like that vanished like a dream it's like my daughter Caroline saying to me sometimes, Daddy, you're not paying attention. You know? Oh, God. So I'm not speaking about being idealistic, but it's something deeper that's a current that carries us. It's like, remember the story of Zen Master Sansanin, when you eat, just eat, and when you walk, just walk, all that Zen teaching, sitting in the breakfast table, reading the paper and eating his (laughs) breakfast, and students complaining about him eating and reading. He said, when you eat and read, just eat and read. Sometimes, especially if you're a parent, you know, it's not like one thing at a time. It's making the kids lunch and cooking breakfast and, you know, checking out um, the homework and, you know, and all those things all at one time. It's sort of like juggling a little bit. But actually, if you watch jugglers who know how to juggle, there's an ease, there's a grace, there's a pleasure, a happiness in it. Zen Master Ryokan, the beloved poet of Japan, Day after day, an old monk begging. Today's begging is finished. At the crossroads, I wander by the side of a Buddhist shrine, talking with some children. Last year, a foolish monk. This year, no change. (laughs) You don't get over it, sorry to say. It's more a kind of grace an ability to rest in this mystery of being alive, of being carried, trust by some inner joy of simply being alive with the sorrows that are there, with the deaths that we know, the assassinations of peacekeepers, the nobility of the world that also burns, as Mary Oliver says sometimes but it's somehow knowing that what matters more than anything is who we are and how we walk through the earth. Martin Luther King to end. I still believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to get pleasure, achieve success and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God come what may to stand up for that which is true. And we know it. And it just takes a moment. some things to say but I think I'll just start from where you said and said from there because I could say something about telling the truth 
and I love uh, the you're reminding me about uh, the Gandhi tribute before you act think of the poorest person and I was thinking that um, I was th talking a lot about mindfulness in this last month as I've been out with this book and being all over the place and I was thinking I could even abbreviate that statement to before you act think hmm. never mind of the poorest people the poorest person is even better but before you act think <laughs> not only before you act outside but before you act inside um, I'm delighted to be here. It's really thrilling to be back uh, where I feel myself most at home. And in a curious way, I have felt myself amazingly and surprisingly at home all over the place in a bunch of cities, coast to coast. And I've had an extraordinarily wonderful time. And uh, Jack didn't tell you exactly the whole story of when I phoned him last week. I, I did say I'd like to come and talk. But I also said that pursuant to saying I really am calling to uh, honor you and give you thanks for the extraordinary piece of advice you gave me before I left on this trip. This has been a wonderful trip. It's kind of a magic surprise. Imagine having a, a trip to 11 major cities in the United States and staying in wonderful hotels and going to radio stations and television stations. It's kind of like a fairy tale. Uh, people ask me, they said, is this a dream come true? And I said, actually, it's more like a surprise come true because I hadn't even dreamed about it. But <laughs> it was great. Um, and before I left, um, at the last minute when I had my schedule of where I was to go, it's kind of like marching orders. Uh, uh, show up here, do this, do that, do this. Kind of exciting. But it was, it was a prodigious schedule with getting up early in the morning in one city and flying to another city and showing up. And I really wasn't so worried about the arduous physical part of it. But I really wanted to do a very good job. I, I felt um, very much like the missionaries, very much like a monk. In the, in the end of the Buddha's life, uh, there's a very stirring sutta that I love to quote to people, where he's sending monks that he's trained out to teach all over India. And uh, he tells them, very stirring, go forth, O monks, and teach in, and in fact, he gives them instructions to teach in the local idiom. So I imagine what he was saying is you don't necessarily have to speak in Pali, you could speak in Gujarati or Hindi or Bengali or whatever. But uh, I think of it uh, a lot when we teach each other, when all of you teach me or we share whatever we know and then we go out into the world each of us that we are continuing in that great message of the buddha he says go forth O monks and demonstrate tell people in whatever way they'll understand as a matter of fact when we began this evening and jack was saying about as we breathe in here and then breathe out and breathe in and breathe out. And the breathing out part being the way in which we manifest in the world. I was thinking that each of these several hundred people that are here 
are here collecting themselves and feeling more clear and I know because it's my experience that when I am more clear I am more loving and more kind and compassionate and more generous and so when I go out as that newly refreshed person I am in fact carrying the message out and I had this view of the Buddha on whatever level enjoying the fact that two or three hundred people will go forth tonight uh, carrying that message either in words or in being for how they are so before I left on this trip, I had very much that sense of go forth, O monk, and bring the word. And so I called Jack and I said, uh, I'd like you to give me some instructions about how to do this. What do you think would be a good way to do this? Because I'd really like to do a good job and want to tell people the message in the best possible way. What should I do? And he paused for a minute in the inimitable Jack way. And then he said, you see, I was waiting for some very extraordinary dharma. <laughs> and I got extraordinary dharma. He paused for a minute and he said, have a really good time. <laughs> so it's fantastic dharma, and I want to tell you why. <laughs> So first of all, I went to Seattle first off, and um, the very first morning I saw this could be really challenging because one of the really wonderful things about these trips is get to stay in wonderful hotels, and there are people called escorts, I didn't know that, that pick you up and take you and bring you to different places. And, and so they deliver you, and they hold your avian water, and they, I mean, they're just really wonderful. So my escort came to get me and drove me in a very heavy rainstorm to the radio station, and the rainstorm was so heavy that the traffic was all jammed. And immediately, it's my first interview, and I'm going to be late. And uh, I realized that there wasn't anything I could do about it. And uh, she was beginning to be upset about it, because it's good for escorts to get you to your place on time. And, <laughs> um, and I was being calm about it, because what were the alternatives? Being not calm would not get me there any faster. And I told her that. I said, you know, I'm practicing being calm now, because uh, being not calm is not going to get us there any faster. And I realized it was a very good uh, preview for the whole trip, because lots of things were tense and under the wire. There were some great moments for that under the wire. But uh, I was continually needing to read, just do this moment now, and this moment now, and this moment now. And as the day went by, I did that interview, and I did another interview, and I did another interview, and then there was a curious pattern that I could see emerging. I'd go to a radio station, and I'd beat somebody, and uh, I'd practiced a little bit of um, what I think my book is about and what I really want to say. And I realized right off that that was not going to work because every single person is a different person and a new person with new questions. And if I thought about what I had planned to say, that would get in the way of what was the response. So I decided it was clearly I needed to do each one exactly new. Then I started to have a really good time. 
But then what would happen is I would leave feeling really up. I'd feel really excited. That was great because you have either 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes and I'd meet someone and immediately when you talk about paying attention and the fact that when we pay attention, in fact, the name of the book is It's Easier Than You Think, but I decided right away I should have named the book We Are Wiser Than We Think and Kinder Than We Think because we pay, when we pay attention, that's the way we behave. And so I'd tell that out as my message and talk about mindfulness and whoever I was talking to would invariably get excited about it and in 10 minutes we were in love with each other or 20 or 30 and I'd be all high and I'd leave and I'd be halfway down the block thinking that was great Sylvia and then I'd think I shouldn't have told that story (laughs) I should have told that other story it's a much better example and what's for I should have told that long story I should have told the shorter one and if I would have told the shorter one I could have told two stories probably blew the whole interview and then I'd start to think about that this whole and that one didn't go I'll probably make the same mistake again the whole tour will go badly the book will be a flop it will be so embarrassing and he's watch the mind state totally crumble and here comes the voice of Jack floating through the airwaves and it says have a really good time I realize I'm not having a good time and it's a terrific mindfulness practice I need to tell you also that I'm a slow learner in a certain way because I already had that message many times from Jack and from all my teachers and from the Buddha because the third noble truth is that the end of suffering is possible we can in any moment see what's the truth and then make the wisest response to that which is always the happiest one because it's the least complicated and the most sensible years ago when I was doing intensive metta practice with my good friend and metta teacher Sharon Salzberg I noticed although I didn't quite get it for a long time that each time I left an interview I'd be leaving and you know how you say thank you very much and I'd be going out the door and Sharon would say to me, remember, Sylvia, be happy. And it went quite over me. I thought it was a pleasantry. You know, like in California, we say, have a good day. And it's kind of like a salutation. And then after a while, I realized that that was an instruction that she was giving me as I left the room. It's an instruction. Remember, be happy. So a lot of the interviews that I had were with people who look at the name of the book that says The Buddhist Way to Happiness, and they say, happiness? How can we be happy? The world is in a terrible shape, and our relationships are, for the most part, in struggling shape, and all kinds of things are wrong. The government is in a bad shape, whatever. And what exactly do you mean by happy? So it's a very far out thing to be in the position of telling people that one of the one of the things that it seems like is that many of us have come along with the notion that in order to be happy we need to be pleased. And it's extremely freeing to know that it's possible to not be pleased and to be wise about it and say, this is what's true. Now, this is what's true, this is what's happening, 
This is what I feel about it. What's the most sensible thing I can do? What's the best response? And to be able to do that, because you see, as I said, it has a certain amount of optimism in it. What's the best response? Actually, the word response indicates a level of faith. There's a level of energy in there. There's that resignation in it. If we can yet respond, there's something we can do. And we're free. We're not trapped. So in those moments that I could think to myself, I'd catch it. Here comes Jack's voice. Have a really good time. Here comes John's <laughs> voice. Remember, Sylvia, be happy. I said, okay. And it's wonderful. It's, it, Jack and I talked on the phone today. We were talking about the wonderful benefit of friends. So I feel very much that my friends go with me all the time, that they live inside of me. I don't need to have them with me all the time. My friend Alex was visiting in the Bay Area just before I left on this tour. And uh, he lives in India mostly, so it was a big occasion to get together. And he phoned, I phoned back. We couldn't find any time to get together because just before I left, my schedule was very busy. And I was getting embarrassed about not having any free time. And I said, you know, this is embarrassing for a contemplative to have a schedule with no time in it. I said, maybe I'm a fraud. And, and he said, and so this was the voice of Alex that accompanied me on this tour, he said, well, of course you remember, Sylvia, that it isn't the degree of activity that matters at all. It's the mind state that's behind it. So thank you very much, Alex. I mean, I'm supposed to know that, right? I'm about to go out on tour and tell everybody that. But we need all the friends we can get to tell us. And so I learned an enormous amount on this trip. One of the great surprises to me is that I got higher and higher and higher as it went along. It's an arduous trip. You get up very early, you can go to sleep late, you keep meeting one person after another. And instead of running out of energy, I kept amplifying the energy. And I thought when I got home late last night, it's a good thing I'm home because pretty soon I'm going to blast off into orbit and have to come home and rest a little bit or something. Because people get so excited when they talk about truth. It's a kick to meet one person after another and talk about what's true and show each other how wise we are. Mostly I was telling stories about the people in my book who are my grandfather or the farmer who lived down the street or the people who sit next to me in airplanes and when I tell people you know my grandfather said this really wise thing I have apropos of um Sansanim, who said, when I eat and read, I eat and read. When my grandfather was very, very old and living in a uh, communal living situation in Florida, I went down to visit him and uh, I'd always admired him tremendously. I thought he was a, a, Zorba, a Zorba in a certain way. Had that a philosophy of life that was really full catastrophe living. Terrible things happened to him. After, during which he would respond with full emotional response. And afterwards would say, well, what can you do? That's the way life is. And he'd go on with his life. 
And he lived to be 98 and died of oldness. And when I went to visit him when he was very, very old, uh, not long before he died, we took walks around the block. He used to take a walk around the block after lunch and after dinner every day, walking very slowly. And uh, I walked with him, and I said to him, when you walk, what do you think about? And he looked at me, and he said, what do you mean, what do I think about? When I walk, I walk. <laughs> so Sansanim said that. And my grandfather, who never heard of Sansanim or the Buddha, said that. <laughs> and when I talk to people all over the place, and I tell them about my grandfather, they tell me about their grandfather and about the person down the street. I wrote a story on this trip called Everybody Has an Aunt Ida, because everybody <laughs> he does and everybody has an aunt Ida who was wise in one way or another I uh, was uh, flying from Los Angeles to New York and waiting online to go to the toilet there's a woman in front of me who I could tell because she was littler and had altogether white hair that she was at least 10 years older than I and because I talk to everybody on every line that I'm on and in every elevator that I'm in which is a habit that I learned from my mother you were Miller Rapist star of Miller Rapist practice and I said to her just passing the time she was waiting I said uh are you uh, vacationing in New York or are you going home to New York? And she said, oh, no, my husband is here with me and we're just going through New York. So she's already flying from Los Angeles and we're going on to Spain for a month. So I said, oh, that's great. Where are you going? She said, I don't know. Uh, she said, uh, I'm very lucky. My husband just likes to look at things very carefully, just the way I do. So we'll just look at Spain for a month. And I thought to myself, that's far out. And then I also thought, I also thought, and I, I was aware of my own bias. I was really surprised to find that this, so to speak, old woman was so adventuresome. So I said, how do you do that? And she said, well, when I buy my ticket, I always reserve a car in whatever city we're landing in, and we'll get the car, and then we'll decide as we go along where we'll go. So I said, that's great. I said, um, I hope you go to Avila. I said, it was wonderful. And she said, I heard that. She said, I hope we do too. <laughs> She said, maybe, we'll see what happens. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I am standing online to go to the toilet with the third patriarch of Zen. <laughs> but they're all over the place. If you ask people... <laughs> Uh, 
I was in New York, and uh, this was one of the high points of my trip. I was on a television program in New York. I was very excited, wearing the right thing, rehearsing what I was going to do. <laughs> and I got a call in my hotel room that said, uh, this is the driver of your car, and I'm approaching the hotel. Come downstairs. <laughs> so, okay, I've been waiting for this call, and I'm pretty hyped up about it. And I go down. And it's a gridlock traffic because it's the day of the 50th UN. Nobody can move. So I'm standing in front of the hotel, standing, standing, standing. No, tra no moving traffic. No person arrives. Starting to do again my Seattle story of, well, either I'll be there or I won't be there. What's the truth of the situation? Truth is I want to be there, but... If I am, I am. If I'm not, I'm not. And I'm keeping myself pretty cool. I'm congratulating myself on that. <laughs> and he arrives, and he's pretty cool, this driver in this gridlock traffic, and he's supposed to get me there on time. And I'm riding up in front with him, and we drive around a few blocks, gridlock traffic. And I say, uh, is this a hard job for you? Is this a headache, this job? And he said, well, John's got a lot of headaches, he said, but... I could make it a worse headache for myself if I got upset about it. <laughs> so there's the Buddha with the second noble truth. Bangladeshi man. I asked him his name and he told me and then I told his story on that television program because I really wanted to make the point that everybody has an Aunt Ida and everybody knows. I uh, went across the street from my hotel one night. I see, I had a very plain little pasta restaurant there, and it appealed to me. So I went down to eat dinner, and I went across the street, and I came out of the restaurant to go back into my hotel. And there's a big hotel on Central Park South. And as I came out of the restaurant, there were all police cars up and down the street, and a whole phalanx of motorcycles and two young policemen there. They may not have been so young, but to me they looked 14 <laughs> in, uh, in SWAT team jackets. Babies, really. <laughs> and I stood there, and the traffic was all blocked off, and uh, I was just going along. I was in the best mood. I was really in the best mood. I was coming along and just hanging out with them. And, People tell you remarkable things if you hang out with them. So I said, um, looks like a lot of police here. I said, somebody important staying here? And they said, well, we can't tell you who, but it's the Prime Minister of Egypt. <laughs> so then I said, uh, all the motorcycles are here. Is he going to go somewhere? <laughs> I said, well, we can't tell you that, but he's leaving in 10 minutes. <laughs> so then we talked for a while about I said, is, is your job hard? Are you afraid on your job? Are you frightened? I mean, it's dangerous. And two young boys, really. And I said, no, no. One of them said, no, it's not. He said, I'm, I'm fine. My father was a cop and my brother's a cop. I'm okay. And the other one also, he said, no, it's all right. My girlfriend worries a little bit, but it's okay. 
And I said, well, you know, what do you think about the fact that the police have some very bad publicity these days? Uh, is it true what they say about the police? And they said, no, no, it's really not true. Really, most of us are very good. Then they said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, I wrote a book, so I'm here in New York talking about my book. And they said, what's it about? And I said, it's about what makes you happy in life. I said, I like to ask people what they think makes them happy. What makes you happy? And the first one said, oh, well, you know, it's having a lot of money and having some free time so you could do what you want. And the second one said, no, I actually think it's having somebody who loves you and having somebody who you love. And the first one looked at him, they looked at me, and he said, I think he's right. He's got a better answer. <laughs> so I write a whole other book from the book I wrote on the trip about my book. I'll tell you one more story, because it has to do with this, um, remember, have a really good time, which is really good dharma. We have always a choice in every situation. We have a choice about the situation, but we have some choice about the mind state, about the response to the situation. I got in a hotel on the, I was waiting for the elevator on the 28th floor of the Swiss Hotel in Chicago. And the elevator was taking a very long time to come up. And there was a man standing there waiting for the elevator business suit, doing body language to let me know that he was upset that the elevator wasn't there. He was tapping his foot and shrugging his shoulders and looking back and forth all, all the lights on the elevators to see which was coming. And the elevator finally came, and doors opened, and we went in. Empty elevator, just he and I. We have 10 seconds to ride down together. And I, I could feel that he was agitated, so just really in, in what I thought was the kindest voice I had, I said, uh, are you having a bad day? <laughs> And he looked for a minute, he looked startled. And then he thought about it for a minute. And then he smiled at me. And he said, no, I'm really not. <laughs> and I think what had happened, and he looked at me, he was continuing to smile. I think that we are so caught up in fast lane mentality that we think we're supposed to be having a bad day. That if, if we're pressed, our instinctive reaction to being pressed is to be grumpy about it. And it was as if I had liberated him from an accidental bad mood. <laughs> and I thought about it. I thought about it in terms, in terms of the transmission of dharma. Because his Jack says to me, have a really good day, or have a wonderful time. I say to this person, are you having a good day? I've, in essence, I'm passing along this wisdom. Jack's wisdom, Sharon's wisdom is now Sylvia's wisdom. And Sylvia speaks to this guy who looks at me and remembers that he isn't. And then it's happy that he's remembered that he isn't. And then we get down to the bottom, and he says to me, have a really good day. 
And I say to him, you too. And I figure it's a latter-day version of go forth, O monks. We are just <laughs> telling each other all the words. So you can see why I was getting higher and higher and higher. Because every day, that's all I talk to people about. I thought about if there was one story that I was going to tell you about that was the best moment. And I, there were great moments. I don't know what's the best moment. But the best go forth amongst moment for me was sometimes I did interviews on radio. And an interview on the radio, uh, on the telephone, is great because you sit wherever you are and then you talk someplace else. So I was sitting on the top floor of a four-story building in on Beacon Street in Boston in my friend Mike Ward's condominium. I was sitting in his living room in my pajamas, drinking a cup of coffee, talking to the morning drive in Detroit. And it's so far out to just think that you're doing that. And the, the great thing about the, the, that's, that's only the beginning of the story. The story is great. They, they call you five minutes before, and then you sit there, and you drink the coffee, and you listen, and you hear all the announcements beforehand and public service announcements and the ads. And it's wonderful because you can tell what the demographics are from what announcements and actually even from the tone of voice and the language of the host on that program. You can tell what probably income level and what schooling level and what social class level just from listening. So I realized that I'm talking to uh, probably working class people on their way driving somewhere early in the morning or fixing breakfast for their families in Detroit. And um, what was really wonderful for me is that the interviewer had read the book and read all the stories, and they're just a whole book full of stories. And they particularly had picked out two for me to tell. And both of the stories were not, they're not the most dramatic stories in the book. The dramatic story, there's some great dramatic stories and stories that I think are very well written. And they wanted me to tell the story about my grandfather and the oranges and uh, my great aunt Sarah, my father in law and great aunt Sarah. And they're the two homiest stories in the book, in a way. And my grandfather and the oranges story is a right action story. And um, my, my father-in-law and great-aunt Sarah is a um, meta story. And I was so happy to be talking about kind action and loving kindness to the morning drive in Detroit. And I thought to myself, this is a marvelous thing that 2,500 years after the Buddha, a woman is sitting in Boston telling the morning drive in Detroit about how doing right action makes you happy and how if you remember the single wonderful thing that anybody ever did for you in your life, in the moment that you remember them, you forgive them everything else and it cultivates this great heart of love. I just love doing that. So... We were going to talk to each other, sweetheart. I talked too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's too long. That's just right. <laughs>
We were going to talk with you, too. <laughs> I, that would be interesting to ask them for a few minutes, because mm -hmm. you hear our words. Um, what is it that you do? Or what is it that you know to stay sane in the midst of complexity or to stay true to yourself? Or what have you discovered as a way to, to be happy in the world, in the world of the 10,000 joys and sorrows? Well, I've, I've discovered that it, it doesn't really matter what's happening in my life. It really all depends on how I receive it. So it's like when I accept what's given, I'm in peace. And when I reject what's given, I'm in pain. And it doesn't really matter what's given. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yep. Please. Um, a meditation that I've been working with lately has been to look for the opportunities in adversity. And for me, that brings a mindfulness. And while you were speaking, Jack, um, early on, it came to me that it's far more courageous to be happy than to be in sorrow. Mm. <laughs> yes, well spoken. It does take a lot of courage for us. Please. I, I wanted to thank you for the distinction between being happy and being pleased. Mm -hmm. Because this morning I was watching the sunrise at uh, Pacific, California Pacific Hospital where a friend of mine is dying. And I realized that I was incredibly happy and peaceful at that moment because I was with him and could touch him and that whatever it was was going to be okay. And so I'm not pleased, but mm. I can't think of any place I'd rather be. Mm. Thank you. During the break, someone gave me a letter, a community member um, whose father also just died in this last week. A very moving account, mostly kind of unexpected in a certain way, although he'd been somewhat sick, but just happened. And he was simply with his father and breathing with him, and then his breath got longer and longer apart. You know how that happens, 15 seconds, then 30 seconds. And then he took his last breath, and he said, I felt so grateful, so really deeply grateful just to be able to breathe with him and be present. It was like the gift of my life just to be there in that way. So simple. Others, please. Yes. Um, I um, work with a, at least one organization called EarthSave, and when you were talking about the truth, when you're sharing the truth, um, I get really um, high, as you mentioned, at some different functions in that when you talk about the you know, food production and the pain that's really associated with it. But it's amazing how, um, how, how wonderful that feeling is, is to be able to share that with people. Mm. Thank you. Aunt Ida stories? <laughs> yes, in the back. Um, I 
listen to the birds. Mm. I find that if it stops me from thinking, it brings me into the present, and it takes me out of my vision. Um, it takes me into my ears. And so when I listen to the birds, it's a way of just being present in a new way. Mm. Yes, please. Well, I was trying to think of uh, Ann Ida stories, but um, actually it comes out as my father's story. Uh, my father, uh, when I was growing up in the late 50s, early 60s, taught me to hunt. And uh, I've since lost and stopped doing that. But what he taught me was uh, not so much hunting as, as stalking. And what he taught me was how to walk. and. Uh, he taught me to walk a little ways and to stop and to listen and walk a little ways and stop and listen. Mm -hmm. And as I've been rearranging the lessons of my father, <laughs> that's one of the paramount things that have come through to me, is, is, to, is that it's, it was a lesson for how to go through my days or my life. Walk. I once walked the six miles from my house to Kent Lake in less than four hours, but that wasn't my best time. My personal best is eight hours and 15 minutes. Yeah. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 6, 1995. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.